hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Yes, Suckatash Chats, the original comedy soundcast featuring interviews from comedy... Soundcast. Soundcasters, comedians, comedian soundcasters, and other showbiz folks. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy soundcast soundcaster, Mark Hershaw. Yes, tis I, Mark Hirsch, on your humble host and seasonal perennial for Epi 144 of Succotash, the comedy soundcast soundcast. This is an installment of Succotash Chats, where we pin down some unlucky wretch from the world of soundcasting and interview the bejesus out of them. Our special guest this episode is Ben Tippett the host of the Titanium Physicists podcast. Now, I only call it a podcast because that's in the official title of his show. And Dr. Tippett, he is a doctor after all, even if it is one of theoretical physics, insists on the term podcast. He's not a fan of the soundcast moniker, which is why, in deference to our guest, I revert back to that term during the interview. Professor Tippett's show is not a comedy soundcast in the classic meaning of the term, He is neither a comedian nor is the content overtly intended to be humorous. But as you will see, he is funny, and the show itself tends to be pretty funny, too. Here's a snippet from our conversation coming up, and then I'll be back to tell you what else we have in store for you, our listener. Were you ever, like, in a laboratory doing whatever physicists do, or have you always been sort of on the teaching path? That's a good question. Um, So I am a theoretical physicist which means that my laboratory is a computer and a desk. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so uh, there's, there is, very broadly speaking, two branches of physics. Uh, there's a whole bunch of physics disciplines, but there's two branches in each. Um, one of people who understand the equations and the theory and try to make new predictions, and the other is doing experiments. So they're the people with the Large Hadron Collider, and the and they build experimental apparatuses. And there's there's endless conversation between the two communities, and there's endless variations of people who are three quarters one, half the other, right? Mm-hmm. That's that adds up to more than one, but they have very busy lives. <laughs> well, that's the way um, physics works, right? There's yeah, a that's whole, right. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who said you had to add up to one? If you had to explain it, it would just it would be too hard. So. That, my friends, is what a real live physicist sounds like, and you'll be hearing a whole lot more from Ben Tippett shortly. Before we get to our chat, however, there is some other business to take care of. I want to thank the two people who used our promo code last September to listen to the live stream of the L.A. Podcast Festival. Now, I don't know who you are, but it did garner us $14 from our share of the ticket sales, and that very nearly covers half the cost of our Libsyn hosting fees for a month. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you are going to be in the San Francisco Bay Area during January, chances are you will be in shouting distance of the 16th annual SF Sketch Fest, and I will be appearing not once but twice during this hallowed affair. That's right. On Sunday, January 15th, I will be moderating a panel before the 40th anniversary screening of the Kentucky Fried Movie. I was just graduating high school when that movie came out. It was amazing, bizarre, hilarious, and just great fun with a crazy cast directed by John Landis. With the Zucker Brothers and Jim Abraham producing, the same guys who later brought us the airplane movies, the police squad TV series, and that led directly to the naked gun movie. So that movie 
the Kentucky Fried movie, will be at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, and that again is on January 15th. A week later, on Sunday, January 22nd, I'll be bringing this show, Suckatash, live to Sketchfest at 4 p.m. at a club called Piano Fight down in the Tenderloin. We'll have a live 90-minute show. I'll have a great lineup of podcasters and comics for you there. So for both or either of those shows, visit sfsketchfest.com where you can get your tickets and further details. All right. For this show, in addition to our special guest, Ben Tippett, we have a double dose of our Burst of Durst with Will Durst and a dip into the tweet sack. Plus, we have what may be the last song by our old pal Abner Surd for a while. And I'll tell you why towards the end of this show. And, of course, this installment of Succotash Chats is brought to you by our friends at Henderson's Pants, exclusive makers of Santa Pants. But first up from political comedian and social commentator Will Durst, here's his take on The Presidential Apprentice. Hey guys, Will Durst here to marvel that only two months before joining the government in an entry-level position, President-elect Donald Trump has been busier than a bartender ten minutes before midnight at a Times Square Applebee's on New Year's Eve. He cleverly kept America's enemies on their toes by refusing to commit to moving into the White House. Replacing a black family living in public housing would cause them to break out in hives. Besides, Melania is reluctant to downsize. A large amount of his time was spent reneging on campaign promises. Who would have thought a New York City developer would welsh on a deal? Oh yeah, everybody. One of the major refrains of his campaign was locking up crooked Hillary. Now he's thanking her for her service to the country. Lock her up with hugs and kisses is what he meant. Also, Trump now says he looks forward to getting Obama's advice. Probably expects some problems with his Kenyan immigration policies. He wants to retain parts of Obamacare instead of getting rid of it on day one. The major complaint is Obama's name on the bill. And as soon as the country starts referring to it as Trump care, he'll be fine with it. That whole imposing a Muslim ban thing? No, no, no. He's imposing a ban on Muslims. No more imported, loosely woven cotton fabric. And he's going to throw up tariffs on Chinese gods, not goods. The eight immortals can stay eternal, but they're going to have to do it on Chinese shores. Ending sanctuary cities? Bird sanctuary cities. Bomb Isis? What he meant to say is the Egyptian goddess Isis is the bomb. Getting rid of naphtha. No, he's going to get rid of naphtha and switch to liquid gas to heat all his resort swimming pools. And building a wall was a simple misunderstanding. He's going to build a mall and get Ross dressed for less to pay for it. Huge tax cuts for the rich because God knows the rich need more money. Yeah, that one he meant. For Succotash, the comedy soundcast soundcast, I'm Will Durst. We will have one more Burst O'Durst coming up at the far end of the show, where he covers the top 10 news items of 2016. Also remember that you can find more of our friend Will at his home site, willdurst.com, and he's also tweeting on Twitter, at Will Durst. And now this timely and lengthy message from our sponsor. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a garment was stirring, not even a blouse. The shirts were hung by the jackets with care, in hopes that some pants soon would hang there. 
The boxers were nestled all snug in their drawers, while socks, athletic and tubular, had been left on the floor. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap were worn out from discussing our marital gap. From the hangers in the closet there arose such a clatter, I yanked open the door to see what was the matter. I pulled skirts and blazers aside like a flash, yanked down all my ties, my belts, and a sash. Though the weak light in that cupboard could barely show the inside of the place where all our clothes go, yet what to my wondering eyes should appear? A dozen new pads to cover my rear. Being hung like a sailor, I'm sorry, being hung by a tailor so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be Saint Nick. More rapid than eagles, his hands they did fold, those pants on wooden hangers so old. He said, oh, now here are some pants they designed for Nixon, and two pairs of trousers custom made for Wolf Blitzer. Check out that zipper, make fast the clasp, for soon pants from Henderson's will save your sweet ass. <laughs> You've heard of their dungarees, pet pants, and khakis, their Wake Island shorts were proclaimed to be tacky. Won't you please try on a pair of Henderson's best, perhaps some turtleneck trousers with a vest, or ballet pants, clam diggers, space pants for sure. Why not their drifter chinos, picnic pants, and more? There are plenty of Henderson's pants to go round. Great pantaloons at a bargain are yours to be found. That jolly old fellow, he saw I was a skeptic and realized that the hard sell at Christmas made me quite dyspeptic. So he mellowed a bit and gave me a smile and suggested we just kick back for a while. I asked him point blank, do you have time to waste? You've only got one night to be all over the place. He laughed and said not to worry, thanks to a secret. He was in no hurry. He showed me from the sides of the trousers their sprouted wings, with pockets so deep he could carry all of his things. A sales spiel on Christmas? Are you joking? You can't! He winked and he said, Brand new from Henderson's. They're the new Santa Pants. Originally made for sneak thieves, elves, and guys who sit on thrones in the middle of department stores right after Thanksgiving, Henderson's original Santa Pants are available at the North Pole. And that's it. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from Henderson's, makers of nice knitwear and naughty naugahyde since 1829. And now back, ho, 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 to Succotash. Without further ado, let's leap into my chat with Ben Tippett host of the Titanium Physicists Podcast. What? No. Hey, hold on. All right. Don't use that one. All right. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Holding. Does that work? Hold on. Snowball. There we go. There we go. Oh, there's the rich, lush sound <clears throat> of the snowball mic. I know, right? Because <laughs> I think the snowball mic has a built-in pop filter. I've been, I've been buying it for all my physicists. Oh, okay. Do physicists have a problem with popping their peas uh they do <laughs> is that why they pronounce the ph because if they said physicist it would really just drive people crazy it's true it's actually supposed to be pronounced physicist 
<laughs> Hello, I study physics, but people couldn't take all the spit. And so they said, okay, if you're going into this, you have to pronounce it like an F. Nice. Doesn't make nice. sense, but, you know. Dr. Ben Tippett, welcome to Succotash. Hello. The comedy. Hello, Succotashians. I I'm forget gonna, what, what Succotashians good, absolutely. You could, put, you could tag Succotash with anything that actually works, and they'll answer to it. <laughs> but uh, for you, for yes. you, hmm. I am rolling back the title of the show to Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast. Yes, that's correct. That's the correct name for uh, the medium we are currently in. It's amazing the depths to which I will stoop to please a guest, including <laughs> abandoning my pledge to try to never use the P word again. But uh, You are now an oath breaker. <laughs> well, <laughs> We're going to send you to the wall. There's nothing new in that either. <laughs> I'm actually a white walker. Oh, well, you're, you're going to the wall either way. Actually, you're closer to being a white walker than I am just due to the fact that you live up in Canada. Well, I, technically, my ethnicity is only half White Walker. Oh, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the other half is? Uh, Japanese. Oh, really? Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know the in, 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 uh, in TV show joke about that, frankly. <laughs> anyway, for, um, yes. for my listeners' edification, uh, Dr. Ben and I have been engaged in some Playful repartee around the difference between the podcast and the soundcast moniker. Yes. Uh, on Twitter. Um, but uh, through that, I, uh, I was able to discover um, the Titanium Physicists podcast, which is your show. That's right. Um, that you host. And you not only host a show about physicists, you are indeed a physicist. Yes, all those things are correct. <laughs> the show, the show isn't. Hold on, hold on. The show isn't specifically about physicists. It's not a. It's not a biography of physics. It is a show about physics where physicists explain physics because the, to a layperson guest. Yes, because they're most so often the best qualified to do that explaining. Well, we. Uh, I, I. There's three. The ratio for physicists experts to guests is three to one, because. Uh, <laughs> you have to gang the, the up on them. Is that the word physics and physicist is a real mouthful to, to say. Is, uh, I, it's, it must sound to your audience like I'm just hissing at them. Uh, <laughs> but the, yeah, so, so the physicists, uh, one physicist alone tends to be pretty bad at explaining. Mm -hmm. uh, they know better than anyone else what they're talking about, but they're horrible at explaining because, you know, they – they naturally reach for the chalkboard and they start writing out equations. And then you say, we can't see the chalkboard. This is an audio medium. And uh, say, well, I, it's, well, it's like this. Uh, physics is like a ballroom. And, you know, <laughs> so we'll have, we'll have three physicists and uh, one uh, layperson. And, and the physicists will try to explain something complicated. And we'll all take turns trying to make more <laughs> elaborate and uh, easier to understand metaphors while the layperson's job is to go – yeah, that didn't make any sense. <laughs> so it's very inside physicists, inside physics, I guess. No, well, the, the you try the deal, not the, to make it inside physics. It's the interface between between physics and the regular world. So uh, there is a dialogue that goes on here between the layperson guest who says, "No, that doesn't make sense. You need to explain it again." Maybe you know, in the show. Hold on, in the show. <laughs> I edit it. I edit it heavily so that you don't hear the layperson losing patience with us as we pile on each other trying to. But yeah, uh, essentially, um, 
it's we go back and forth. Did that explanation make sense? It did. No. It, it, I, just, you know, yeah. I will, uh, you know, I'll pop in a, a a clip from the show right about here so people can understand that sort of uh, interplay. And I, I've seen that you've, uh, although I missed this episode, you had Greg Proops on at one point. Oh, don't, don't use that show. What? Really? Listen, yeah, Greg Proops, Greg Proops is a fantastic man and I adore his podcast and his work is fantastic. <laughs> but I started that episode, I introducing him and then I called him, I made a joke. I was like, ha, huh, I listened to his show. I can, I can call him old. Oh. And I think, I, I think that was the wrong foot to step on. <laughs> he was, he was abrasive. He was so abrasive the whole time and he blamed physicists for most of the world's ills. Wow. And he's not wrong. He, you know, <laughs> who invented the atom bomb, right? It was us. Uh, it's like so uh he's not wrong uh but it was not the most entertaining show it was also about the uh that particular episode was about the uh the higgs boson and uh i so i have a, a a whole bench of really really smart guy smart guys and girls smart men and women smart people who are able to explain complicated things and at the last minute most of them uh had to drop out of that episode and so (laughs) that particular episode we did our we did our very best but it was it was assembled one of the one of the people on the show wasn't even around very long to help us prepare and came just kind of parachuted in (laughs) as a favor to us and he did he did a marvelous job for what it's worth but the higgs boson is a very complicated thing to explain and it would require a lot more organization than i personally put into the show so that episode is a combination of greg proof's who is not very happy to be here because I, I think that was the last episode that I went through somebody's agent. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I think I was talking to Andrew Johnstone, who, who you, you know, Andrew, I know right? Andrew very well. Yes. So Andrew Johnstone, I think he'd booked Greg Proust or something like that. And I said, how did you do it? And he said, he goes through his agent. And so I started going through people's agents mm. and I, you know, Hey, cause agents know when the schedule is right. They, yeah. they have executive power, but the agents I discovered don't tell the guests no. that they're coming on a physics show. No. And so they assume that they're going to come and do a normal <laughs> interview yeah. with somebody about, you know, it's just like, yeah. This is my life, and and like, hold on, that's too too dangerous. Yeah, I'm here to learn physics. What's the? When are you going to ask me about my movie? Right. Yes. Although it Um, seems like that sort of deep subject is definitely up Proops's alley. It is. He he kind of loves that stuff. And and before you make any assumptions about my age, I have to tell you that Greg and I are contemporaries uh, to the point (laughs) that we actually were in the same improv group in San Francisco. So really, well, Greg Proops, marvelous person. Listen, I love love his podcast, but I got the impression that he was like, (laughs) hold on, what is this? What am I doing? I was, it was that show. It was all my fault. Uh, (laughs) I, as the person who directs it and sets the organizing and decides whether to go on with the skeleton crew or not and does all those things, I made every mistake building that specific episode and it broke my heart because oh. I love Greg Proops to death. All right. And I would have loved – yeah. I will defer to your judgment if you want to recommend a, a, an episode you think is exemplary of – uh, what you're talking about in terms of trying to exchange, uh, explain physics, physics to a layman. I will be uh, happy to a clip from yeah. that show. You know, uh, yeah, uh, there yeah. are shows with, um, we've had way more good shows than not. I'm trying to think of, 
You just came up with a tagline for your show. We've had way more. We've had way more better shows than not. Our shows. I'd say our show is about ninety-five percent effective. Where at the end of it, I go, "Yeah, okay, we got we got everything talked about, and it wasn't horrible, and the guests had fun and stuff." I think. I let's see. Um, do you think web comic artists are are too uh, are too? No, no, uh, that's you mean in terms of uh, a guest that our our listeners would understand yeah, or know yeah. about? No, no, that's yes. fine. That's perfect. Who, who do you? Oh, mind? yes. So we've had we've had a uh, uh, Ryan North on, and we've had um, Zach Weiner Smith on, and they both made very good guests. Okay, well, Weiner Smith Weiner Smith wins just because of his name. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Are you familiar with Zach Weiner Smith? I'm not, but his name is much funnier than the I, other guy. He makes the comic Saturday morning breakfast cereal. Oh, okay, yeah, right? I know his work. Uh, I just didn't, I didn't recognize the Wiener Smith name, which is odd. Well, you think his name on the sh- his name on the comic uh, is Wiener Zach Wiener, and he married uh, a lady named Kelly Kelly Smith, and, and hyphenated uh, his last name. They both hyphenated their names. Wow. Well, they didn't hyphenate them; they merged them. Wow. They started a new surname. That was a combination <laughs> of their previous ones. That's the Wiener Smith. All right, now I got to get him on here as a guest. Good lord! They even had uh, a science podcast called the Weekly Wiener Smith, where they would interview scientists every week. It was fantastic. Wow! I think they got too busy, and then yeah, oh, okay. they uh, they they got too busy, and so they had to stop making it. But it's a very good show. One of the plans for how to get humans on Mars involves actually landing on Phobos first as kind of a first mission just to get humans out there and learn how to get humans to Mars. So like land on Phobos, spend some time on Phobos, maybe even land a rover on the surface that you could like directly drive from Phobos and explore around on Mars with the rover. Um, so NASA really is interested in it. And so there, there will probably be a mission to either image or land on Phobos sometime in the next few years, if I had to guess. Wow, that'd be freaky though, because Phobos doesn't have much gravity. Like, I mean, no. <laughs> could, could you? Could like, is it enough that a human could jump off, or is it a little more than that? It's probably about that. I bet you could. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's it's a not, little it's not scary. Like, you jump too high, you die. Hey, you probably. I'm sure you'd have to like secure if you had a habitat or something. I'm sure you'd have to like drill into the surface. To so how do they? How do you have a rover? Then do you have to have it just lock on all the time, or is it like on a track or? Well, so if you landed something, you'd probably have to use, like, a harpoon or something just to keep it safe. Like, they tried to do that with when they landed on the comet earlier last year and failed, unfortunately. But um, So the rover I was talking about would actually be on Mars, though. So you'd land humans on Phobos and then land another rover on Mars. And then the cool thing is, you know, you could actually drive it, like, with a joystick from Phobos, which would be really cool. Oh, that's right, because there's, like, a 20-minute delay, I guess, uh, right, right. Now. Yeah, so the the really cool thing about the Mars rovers is that they're they're almost like semi-autonomous. Like they do most of their driving by themselves, which is really really hard. So like we, you know, we, the way we plan these rover missions is we sit down, have this like eight-hour meeting, and decide what the rover is going to do for the next day. Send those directions to the rover, and then the rover, you know, takes those directions and says, "Okay, I have to get from point A to point B." But then the rover has to figure out how it's going to get there. Like I see this rock, I have to go around this rock, and so they're they're pretty they're pretty advanced. Is, it, that's, is that the newer ones, or have they all been that way? Uh, they, so that's that's kind of the reason that they sent, um, even going back to Pathfinder in 1996, um, even that mission had a little bit of autonomy to it, because you just you can't drive these things like with a joystick. So that, that's the thing they've been developing for a long time. 
Yeah, it's got to be a little scary. So you send the commands for a whole days of work, and you just hope nothing goes wrong. <laughs> Pretty much, and it does sometimes. You know, these rovers they get stuck. They can get stuck in piles of sand. That's actually how the Spirit rover died. Was that it? It got stuck in a pile of sand. It couldn't get out. And then when winter came, its solar panels weren't turned toward the sun, so it basically just got cold and shut down and died. And it was really sad. So, how does a theoretical physicist and mathematician become a podcaster? That's a good question. I mean, I listened to podcasts in the, you know how, how there's kind of waves of popularity of, of podcasting right now. We're in about the third wave, right? Where yeah. a whole bunch of people now it's, now it's, uh, NPR type people making podcasts. It's yeah. Really and, the, and, and they've ex- sort of attenuated out to where you're getting, you're getting a lot of sort of, uh, narrative fiction and sort of, and oh, it's yes, become so very interesting. Narrative. Yeah. 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 Very much so. Uh, it's very, become very professional. And the second wave I think was probably comedians, mm-hmm. right? Comedians and radio people who maybe got kicked off the air for swearing too much said, okay, I'm going <laughs> to podcast. Yeah. Uh, but the first wave was, uh, you know, Johnny in the basement doing a show about tips for Max. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I, I, I think I started listening kind of around then in the in the mid 2000s, um, and I really liked it. And then one day I published. I didn't publish. I distributed a, a paper online about the physics of Superman. It was called the Unified Theory of Superman, and I described all of Superman's powers as stemming from one specific power so it's not that superman had you know eight or nine different powers it's Mm. that he had one power and all these different powers are manifestations of that and people like that paper 2006 or something was a long time ago i think um i think i remember seeing that because i'm mm. a a huge superman fan so anything that says (laughs) superman on it catches my eye so i think i i think i actually saw either something maybe a story about that i don't know that i actually saw the paper but i remember hearing something about this yeah 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 people wrote articles about it um because people need something to write articles about i guess Mm. anyway so i uh i got invited to uh a a podcast a science podcast called science sort of uh and it's run by a guy named uh ryan hopp and he said hey why don't you come on a show and talk to us about superman and i said okay and his podcast was really fun, and he kept inviting me on to be a. Uh, he added me to their to their kind of crew of scientists who come on every week and talk about things. Um, so his show is called Science, sort of. I, I can't remember if I. I think I said that. All right. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I uh, I started doing that, and then after a few, uh, I was in graduate school at the time, and so I would do that once once a month or so. Um, and then near the end of graduate school, I decided to start my own podcast, the, the, the Titanium Physicist podcast. And so we, including Zach Wienersmith, incidentally, oh. uh, uh, Zach and Kelly Wienersmith, we, uh, we all started a, a podcast network called the Braculo Media Network, where it was sci- young scientists making podcasts about science. Um, and there's still, there's, we've, we've added some more shows to it since then. Um, so, and some of the shows like, like Zach and Kelly's have kind of pod faded, yeah. but, um, yeah, there's still two or three or four shows on the network. I forget how many, uh, that are still kind of going strong. Okay. And it, okay. so it's fun. So that's how I got into it. Um, mm-hmm. and I really do buy into this idea. Like right now, podcasts are so shiny. The new ones are so shiny. Like if you have somebody who goes, who's only listened to serial 
And, so, and that type of like fancy yes. NPR podcast or the big NBC decides to throw money behind a, a, a radio drama, a podcast radio drama about people getting stuck in a mine shaft or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they might think that, that podcasting is something that only professionals can do. Mm-hmm. And while that's – I mean professionals do podcasting well because podcasting is uh, – it's like it's like the child of radio, right? So if you know how to do radio really well, you can do podcasting really well. But like back in the old days, there were so many really really big risks were taken with the podcasting medium. Like there was one really popular show. I'm not sure if you remember. It was called The History of Rome. Yeah, and it was like always at the top. And if you listen to it, it's a guy essentially reading every week for maybe about half an hour, some chapter in the history of Rome. (laughs) And it moved from like back in the days where there were three hills and everybody fought with, you know, uh, sticks and arrows to like, you know, the end of the, the end of the empire. And he did it for several years and it was consistently at the top of the, of the ratings. (laughs) And that said to me that podcasting was a medium that you could go into and make specialized material that people might have always been interested in, right? I'm like, hey, I don't. What do I know about Rome? Nothing. Yeah. I have an iPod or a, you know some kind of MP3 player and some free time because I walk to school every day or drive to drive to work or whatever. I, I have the chance to listen to to this. And if it's if the if the content is even if it's boring factual content, if it's presented in a mildly humorous, interesting ways in bite-sized pieces, it is it becomes accessible. Suddenly, you're no longer at a desk having to read a really boring book. You can get the information into your head, and that appeals to me, and it apparently appeals to everybody else. And so this is this is one of the motivating elements behind me starting this really boring physics podcast <laughs> because I'm like, hey uh, – it looks like there is an audience out there. We know that, you know, you go to a party. I go to a party. Maybe not you. I go to a party and there's always one person at the party. It might be 30 people. One person out of 30 will come up to me and say, wow, I love physics. Neil deGrasse Tyson. But And then they'll ask me some really, really <laughs> interesting physics question. And I'll think of myself, boy, it would be great if this person had access to a lot of the interesting physics that I know, but maybe – Maybe he doesn't need to go to grad school to get it. <laughs> just go, so, just go to his earbuds and get it. Yeah, so I'm like, hey, why don't I make a podcast for these people? I know they exist. I know it's an audience. I know that they'll the chance of them finding my show is very low. But if you keep making the show for, you know, half a decade now, people find it. Slowly, yeah. slowly, slowly. Every Every month you get another dozen or, you know, a handful of people. They add up. And they keep listening. That's the nice thing about podcasting is that, you know, you listen to a show and after, you know, three months of listening to the history of Rome, you'll say, okay, I'm a third of the way through this and I am tired of Rome. You can just stop listening to those podcasts and then come back later when you're back, when you're back into it and then listen to what you missed. It's, it's not a medium that requires, uh, steady release dates the way say like you know radio you, know, you have to go on the air every week and present something you don't if you don't have something to say one month don't say anything True. because all you're doing is pissing the people off who are really excited to hear really good quality content and then when you do produce things they'll show up in the person's feed you, that that feed is always there on their phone unless they decide to delete it and that means that you can get it, the subscription based service is perfect for really boring material like mine <laughs>
<laughs> well, I don't. I don't find what I've heard so far of the Titanium Physicist podcast to be boring. I well, will, I will say you've used the term podcast so many times in just the I know. last ten minutes that I am tempted to go to back in and just to and just replace it with the word soundcast, just in my own, <laughs> just in my own voice. But well, I won't I'm say it even more because then it will give you more work until you give up. Podcasting is the name of the medium. Well, before our conversation's over, we'll we'll talk a little bit about our our sort of philosophical differences about the two terms, but. <laughs> uh, maybe i don't know uh, we might get to it but um i'm curious what your take is on uh sort of science as comedy and i'm thinking particularly of people like bill nye the science guy and a friend of mine who bills himself as the science comedian brian mallow right um what, what's your take on sort of their approach to uh sort of bringing science to the people Brian Mallow is a great example. Um, he's all, he he is friends with the uh, that first podcast I met, Science Sort of. Mm -hmm. He's on a lot. I don't think I've ever been on a show with him. Maybe maybe once a few years ago. But it, it's a great idea. Um, yeah, he's a great guy actually. He he was actually going to be starting this this show with me six wow. six years ago, but then he moved out of San Francisco and got a job back east with a museum. And, uh, it was just too hard to kind of pull it together. And I said, ah, he said, Hey, how's that idea for the podcast coming? And I went, I already started it, Oh no! <laughs> but he is a great guy. He is a great guy. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. And he's found a lot of success and, and you, you mentioned Bill Nye too, right? Yeah. Who I um, also weirdly know uh, <laughs> because I used to run a comedy club in Seattle and he started out as a stand-up comic and sh just, just showing up doing open mics. And he was an engineer. I yes. Think, he was I think working for Boeing. Yeah. And he would show up and start doing just this weird sort of egghead humor. It was, uh, huh. yeah. Back in the day. Uh, we live, we live in this, in this great, like the internet's fantastic because there, there's no filter, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no sensor. There's no, no one person saying, there's no studio executive saying, well, we don't think that 80% of the audience will think that's funny. So no, <laughs> uh, uh, that said science as science comedy is a really interesting, it's, it's kind of a double edged sword, right? Because on the one hand you have, uh, you have a lot of people with very negative emotions towards math and science. And these negative emotions are because they had to study them in school and they didn't enjoy studying them in school. It was onerous. It was this teacher was mean or bad and they didn't understand. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, the, 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 the intellectual equivalent of climbing the rope in gym class. Everybody's like, why did we have to do this? We didn't like doing it. Nobody had fun. There's no point to this, right? They're like, why did we have to learn chemistry? There's no point. Nobody has chemistry. I don't care what a, what a molecule is, right? Um, so science comedy takes the burr off that. It, it lets people say, oh, listen, it's funny. We can enjoy this. We can enjoy this as something that isn't confrontational. We can enjoy this as something that doesn't hold our, our, our inability to study really boring things against us. And, and so that's a positive thing because I think in this day and age there really is – and there's multiple camps in this particular metaphor. But I, I think there's kind of a war against mainstream science where there's a lot of people saying, I don't like the way this science is done. I don't like the way this science is done. And they're, they're right and they're wrong depending on their reasons – but the long and the short of it is the thing that determines how much science gets done is public funding, right? Yeah. Because nobody funds – almost nobody funds uh, uh, private science anymore. Unless the, it's the, like the really, Elon Musk or somebody. 
Yeah, that's right. And that's like nothing. That's a drop in the bucket compared to what what governments can do, right? Right. right. And so if everybody in the population is willing to make cutting science funding an election issue and they're like, yes, let's cut science funding, boo to that, then then guess what? Science dries up. Yeah. Um, so so have putting a friendly face on science, doing PR is important. It's important because there are really huge benefits to having uh, having good science being conducted by by a society. We all reap the benefits of carefully done science. I don't know. Anyway, uh, the, the the flip side of that is it it kind of infantilizes it. I don't want to say it infantilizes it, but it's just kind of right now people are like global warming's happening. They're right. But they say global warming's happening. Bill Nye needs to go in and explain <laughs> global warming to President Trump. And I'm like <laughs> Bill Nye is a guy with a children's show. If Bill <laughs> Nye fails at this, are you going to send in the Wiggles? Is Big Bird going to go and be like, well, the thing about chemistry, doc, you know, like. I, you know, with Donald Trump, that's a possibility. Might I, the, right the, level, the, the Wiggles, doc. the Wiggles might be at his level. <laughs> so, um, so, so I. On the one hand, it's a good thing. On the other hand, it doesn't really put an adult face on science. Mm. I think that what Bill Nye has done is great. I, in fact, you know who I think the best science communicator out there is? Hmm. It's uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Sure, I was just about to bring him up as uh, sort of the, the reverse of, of like a Bill Nye. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's not really a reverse. It's one is. I'm not. I don't mean one is for kids. Everybody of all ages can enjoy Bill Nye. But one is aimed at a at an developmental audience mm -hmm. and the other is aimed at an adult audience. And there's a huge difference between, um, between the levels of instruction and the, how, how subtle things can get in, in those two, um, mm -hmm. in those two tacks. And so I, I, you know, if, if people were like, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, actual scientist, he is an astrophysicist. He has a PhD in astrophysics. And now, now you know, we, we mentioned Bill Nye is, uh, is, is an engineer. Right. And so if he were to explain aircraft engineering to us, I'd be like, fantastic. He's an expert on that. Um, and he's a very, very good at, 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 what, at what he does. I mean, like, I, I don't want to say anything bad about Bill Nye. I just don't want <laughs> him being the highest level of public discourse in science and he is doing his best. Let me say Bill Nye has come out of retirement to try to convince Americans that science is an okay thing. And I think that that's honorable of him. <laughs> uh, but like, why don't we have actual scientists put their face to it? And, and the nice thing about the age that we live in is that's starting to happen. Uh, we've got all sorts of scientists doing outreach Podcasting is a great example, but they also do YouTube videos. All sorts of scientists do YouTube videos. Uh, blogging. Now, blogging is, on the one hand, blogging is kind of uh, this thing that, you know, is covered with Mount Vesuvius detritus. Like, it's old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, who reads blogs anymore? Uh, but <laughs> but blogging was a natural outlet for a lot of scientists to do outreach, to explain their perspective, explain their, uh, explain their opinions, explain their science to people. Uh, like, you know, Phil Plate, uh, the, the bad astronomy blog, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Uh, we're seeing more of that. And I think that that's helping 
the discourse. And I think it's, it's really beneficial. Um, so, and, and the, the natural, th the, the interesting thing about scientists is scientists are mostly pretty funny people. Uh, I, they're funny. There's, there's humor in there. And if you let scientists communicate in their own words, humor enters into it. I would agree. In fact, our discussion when uh, we were talking about having you uh, on Succotash was you said, oh, my show is not a comedy show. And I said, I, I think I found some quite a bit of humor in the episodes I've heard. So I, yeah. I, I have to agree with you. Yeah. Uh, and it's I mean, I don't want to hold my show as the Paragon because uh, it's a little boring. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> Again, but... great, great tagline. But it's depending a on it's a little boring. It should be my tagline. But the uh, uh, over the broad spectrum, the thing that we've discovered in watching scientists communicate in their own words as as uh, really informal attempts to uh, do outreach, and by informal I mean a blog, something done on their living room computers, not something that has any funding behind it, not something that's done twenty hours a week, something that's done maybe two hours a week, right? Right. What we see there is that there's humor, there is humanity, there is compassion. Scientists aren't just uh, caricatures. Uh, we're not unfeeling, totally logical, uh, totally politically inert people. We aren't Dr. Frankenstein trying to build monsters. We are <laughs> humans who live in cities and towns and countrysides, and we want to see our fellow humans do well, and some of us have children, and some of us don't, right? We're just people. <laughs> and so the neat thing about the era we live in, to bring it back to science humor, is that we get we get to see that. Um, and it's all part, all of these different efforts are all part of a whole whose joint effort is to humanize science, make it popular, make it sympathetic, and also increase the level of science discourse in our society. And both things are kind of needed in this day and age because they're both, you know, people have such bad opinions of science because they stopped paying attention in grade three. Yeah. 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 yeah and uh, so <clears throat> if we can get people to pay attention by hook or by crook, and if we can, as a result, humanize science as something that deserves funding, if we can humanize the, the science done in a way that makes people more scientifically literate, then great. It's great. There's room for everybody at this table, thankfully. Uh, yeah. Well, that sounds like a good uh, good perspective on it, I think. <laughs> oh, thanks. Sorry, I'm preachy. No, no, that's okay. What uh, what got you into science? Well, I mean, it's in terms of like a career path. Uh, I think I've always been interested in science. To, to be honest, uh, there was outreach going on even in the 80s when I was a kid. Uh, there were people saying, look, science is fun. You can imagine having science as a career. And it wasn't presented as something that was really pencil pushy, uh, you know, where it was like, hey, you can go work at NASA or at Boeing. It was, hey, you can go pick up frogs. Or, <laughs> I should, you know, it's funny because I had this strong sense that science was a good career for me to go into, but not a sense of what being a scientist actually involved. <laughs> so as a child, I knew because of all these outreach efforts that people were doing in the 80s that I wanted to be a scientist, that it would be really a fun and noble profession. Uh, I had no idea what it involved. Uh, that said, you go into high school, you take some science classes, and I said, of all these science classes – uh, you know, I'm 
really good at physics and everybody's really bad at physics, maybe I'll go into physics. See, that's the thing. That's the good thing. See, when I was like eight, I remember having this this image in my head of wearing a lab coat and becoming a hmm. scientist. And then I got into high school. I said, I don't get any of this. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was uh, interesting that, um, you know, you pick that thing that you go, hey, there's not that much competition. And I remember I was going into high school from junior high and I used to play the trumpet. And my, oh, yeah. my music instructor said, you know what? Trumpet players are like a dime a dozen. He says, you know what nobody's <laughs> playing these days? The French horn. So, that's so what I, they always say. That's the con, right? Yeah. And so then I, you go to a party because you're 21, <laughs> and you're like, "I play the French horn," and all the women are like, "I'm going to go talk to the trumpet player." Yeah, it's not a it's not a sexy instrument. That's for <laughs> it sure. So bad, but it it did get me into the orchestra, so that was good. That was oh yeah, good sure. Thing. Yeah, it opens a lot of doors to. Oh yeah, playing more French horn. <laughs> that's why it's like, I, if you're the, if you're, it's like if you're the person who's really good at eating Brussels sprouts. That's, right. that's why I have a guess French, what it's I have a new path. I have a new French horn soundcast coming out. I'd like to share with everybody. I've not really talked about it yet. Is it called Brapcast? It can be, or it can be called Put Your Hand in This. <laughs> Um, so you're, uh, you're, you're teaching, right? At, um, yes. the university of British Columbia. Uh, yeah. The university of British Columbia has a co- campus in, uh, the Okanagan in, in a, in a city called Kelowna in the interior of British Columbia. It's a, it's a small, you, the university of British Columbia is this huge university in Vancouver. Like it, it takes, it, it has this monstrous footprint <laughs> and it's one of the biggest universities in Canada. And it's just this amazing, huge place. This, you know, only the best fanciest people go get, get to work there. Um, but it also has a satellite campus in Kelowna. So I'm teaching at the satellite campus, yeah. Ah, I see. Yeah, there used to, it's, Actually, there used to be a one-nighter comedy show that we used to book in Kelowna. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a comedy club. It's a couple blocks from here. Yeah. So it's got everything out there in Kelowna. It does. Kelowna's got a lot of things. We have a lake and mountains. So there's a ski hill. That's nice. Yep. Um, so were you... Were you ever like in a laboratory doing whatever physicists do or have you always been sort of on the teaching path? That's a good question. Um, So I am a theoretical physicist, which means that my laboratory is a computer and a desk. Okay. Uh, (laughs) So uh, there's – there is very broadly speaking two branches of physics. Uh, There's a whole bunch of physics disciplines, but there's two branches in each. Um, one of people who understand the equations and the theory and try to make new predictions. And the other is doing experiments. So they're the people with the large hadron collider and the, and they build experimental apparatuses and there's, there's endless conversation between the two communities and there's endless variations of people who are three quarters, one half the other, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that adds up to more than one, but they have very busy lives. (laughs) Well, that's the way Um, physics works, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Who said you had to add up to one? If you had to explain it, it would just, it would be too hard. So yeah, (laughs) it's quantum mechanics. Um, so, uh, so right. So I, unfortunately, you said that when you were a child, you imagined a, a career in science wearing a lab coat. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I haven't worn a lab coat since I was an undergraduate. <laughs> <laughs> I not thought even, I'd have even, a lab coat. Not, not even just to put one on, just to, yeah, just well, to kind of I mean, wear, it or, wear it around. I, yeah, but I mean, you could do that with any, any type of coat, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could put on a fireman coat, but it would be meaningless. Same thing with the lab coat. You'd be a theoretical fireman. That's right. <laughs> um, 
So I uh, so I did a year of postdoc, which is after you graduate with a PhD. So when you're doing a PhD, you'll usually study under a supervisor mm-hmm. who gives you projects and tells you to read a different book and then tells you your ideas are bad or your ideas are good and, you know, mentors you. Sure. Um, so after you get your PhD uh, in physics, what usually happens is you go do a couple years as a postdoctoral researcher. Uh, which means you'll move to a different city and spend a couple years doing research, uh, collaborating with different tenured professors. Um, so I did that for a year and discovered that I hate applying for grants and I hate applying for jobs <laughs> and I hate doing paperwork. I really like doing theoretical physics, but I hate doing paperwork. So I said, at the time, I said I'd been teaching a little bit, and I said, this is an okay plan B. I'd gotten a certificate to teach. I'd had a couple, uh, at this point in time, four or five courses experience teaching. So I said, I'm just going to go into teaching full time and then do that because you don't have to do as much paperwork <laughs> if you're <laughs> Okay, that's very logical. That's well, very logical. <laughs> you, have to, you have to balance these things. Life is all about balancing different undesirable and desirable things. Now, I'm curious what your parents thought, because, I mean, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, parents seem to, like, love that. If you want to be a comedian or an actor, parents go, are you out of your mind? But if you want to be a physicist, and maybe even particularly a theoretical physicist, how do parents react to that information? Well, at first, like one and then like the another. Like, parents parents run on uh, prestige, Right. (laughs) And prestige is an entirely external thing. So what happens is they go and they tell their friends, well, I have a twin sister and she went to Harvard. Oh, and I I didn't. I went to I went to UBC in in Vancouver to to study physics. And so they say I have a daughter and she's at Harvard and I have a son and he's going into physics. And (laughs) the people go, oh, your daughter is so smart. (laughs) Tell us more. (laughs) I mean, yeah, sure. She's fantastic. Uh, And then so. uh and so they would do it. What are, you, what are you doing in physics? And I was like, I don't know. I just like doing math. And they'd be like, oh, well, there's no jobs there. And I'd be like, well, I don't know. Maybe there is. <laughs> but then, but then once I, once I was almost getting my PhD, they would start, they would, they would tell their friends, hey, my daughter is a lawyer. And my, she went to Harvard Law and they, wow, he's really smart. She's really smart. And then they'd say, my, my son, he's a theoretical physicist mm-hmm. and he has a PhD. And they'd say, wow, he must be really smart. Tell nice. me about him. And so suddenly it balanced, right? And suddenly my prestige <laughs> went up. But now my sister is a, is a law professor. Oh, boy. And so she's back up higher than me on this. Yeah. But it's okay because at this point in the time in the game, I don't think my, you know, Parents care about prestige anymore. Yeah. They care more about grandkids. Yeah, yeah. So my my sister my sister had children and oh. I did not. Oh, and dear. then so you know, so she's still leading. She's still but yeah, leading. but it's yeah. At this point in the game, we're like, oh, this this competition is over. You, they just won. Now, they just you, won. They're better than. That's <laughs> have fine. you ever been tempted just to say, yeah, well, I'm sort of tinkering with time travel, or I'm playing around with the idea of uh, I don't know teleportation or something like that to make it sound like you're doing something sexy. I mean, yeah, I, I, I just wrote a paper about uh, a time machine space-time. The, the area of physics that I'm an expert in is the one that has applications for time travel. Ah. And so for fun, a few years ago, I wrote a paper about a, a time machine. Um, and I tried to get it published, and the publisher was like, no. 
<laughs> and I was like, okay, well, and then I took all the criticism, which was that the paper was horrible. And I, I rewrote the paper and I sent it back to them in, in September. And I said, here, publish the paper now. It's a really good paper. And I haven't heard back from them. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So I, love time, I love time travel stories. I, <laughs> the first script I ever sold to Universal was a time travel movie. Oh, did you write, did you write Back to the Future? Uh, back to the Future and I have, a, well, I didn't. <laughs> But, oh, the, but, 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 but if I, if I fix the time machine, you will have, is well, that, no, here's, we... here's, here's the thing is uh-huh. the, the script that I wrote with, with, was with a comedian who was playing at the club. I was running in Seattle at the time, a guy named Franklin and we wrote, came up with this idea for this time travel comedy. And he, he was a fairly big deal at the time in LA. And so uh, we got a development deal through universal. And uh, so we, they paid us to write this script and they loved it. And we didn't know that Universal was also the studio that was that had Back to the Future in development. Oh wow! And then we didn't hear anything for a while. They paid us our money, and they said, "Yeah, we'll let you know about the rewrite." And then all of a sudden, we got this frantic call to come in for notes, and we went in for notes, and they gave us all these kind of weird notes. And it turns out that we got called in because uh, Eric Stoltz was supposed to star in Back to the Future, as you may know, um, and it wasn't working. They'd shot like weeks and weeks of, of the movie and huh. they, they fired him. Right. And all of a sudden the movie went down and all, right. all anybody knew was universal was doing a time travel company. So all of a sudden we got the go. Huh? And in between the time we got the go and we turned in our, our rewrite, they found Michael J. Fox. Right. And you never heard from our movie again. Oh, that's too bad. It is too bad. It is too bad. Ours, but I mean, oh, well. like Back to the Future is so great. It is great. Ours dealt with like, sla- ours dealt with slavery because frankly, I, I guess yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is okay. So you went to the Olympics and you got silver. Yes. You got silver to Usain Bolt, the fastest man in the world. Like literally, your screenplay got silver <sighs> to the best movie ever made which brings to mind one of franklin's bits that he was famous for about being in the olympics and coming in last <laughs> he says you watch that guy coming in last running on the track and you can just see it on his face he goes damn i just trained for four fucking years and i'm last i wouldn't <laughs> have to train at all and i would have been last <laughs> <laughs> yeah well uh, one of my other yes. favorite ideas i had for a short a time travel short is a guy who invents time travel and uh, he's he's kind of this pompous scientist, right. and uh, he's got an assistant and not not a whole lot of other things. He's got a lab, and he has this big press conference, and everyone's come to see him turn on his time machine for the first time. And he says, "I'm only going to pick one of you to observe the, the experiment." So they pick this guy who's the most uh, uh, skeptical of all mm-hmm. the science reporters to go into this lab and watch this this thing happen. And, and the whole, the whole crux of the show is this guy has never invented time travel. What he's done is created this tremendous amount of pomp and circumstance because he knows that if he can do this and people are really excited about it, somebody in the future who has invented time travel will want to come back to the moment that everyone believes time travel was invented. (laughs) Right. And And so he's in this secret lab. And as soon as he switches on the machine, there's this wavering in the air and somebody pops into existence and this armed force comes out from all behind all the machinery and they get the drop on the guy and they steal his time travel device. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) 
anyway, so it's a favorite topic. I'm sure of many, many people, not just me, of course. But... Oh, yeah. I love time travel. We did an episode on time travel. You oh. should listen to our, our Titanium Physicist episode on time travel. I'll go back right now and do it, and I'll tell you how I liked it. Oh, yeah, well. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what uh, what does the future, uh, as it were, yes. have have in store? I mean, is, is are there plans to do more with the Titanium Physicist's concept because i mean it is very intriguing this idea of bringing in physicists to explain to a layman how certain things work and i can see that extending into different formats and media and things like that right Uh, that's a good question um right now we produce about 12 episodes a year Mm -hmm. so yeah it's about once a month it there's there's pauses and rushes there's some months where i'll make two episodes and some months where i'll make no episodes but it's about 12 a year um and A lot of the – I mentioned that I wanted to do this uh, project around when I was in in graduate school uh, because there were certain topics from physics, certain certain pieces of settled science that I really wanted people to know about because I thought that they were totally crazy bananas but also made a lot of sense. And at the time, you saw a lot of science outreach. Uh, If they were about physics, they'd either be about – you know, Bill Nye, super simple. Here's the concept called momentum. That, you know, yeah, everybody heard about that in high school. Right. Um, and then, uh, or you would hear people do string theory because <laughs> that was the hot topic in you know late 2000s. And the string theory TV shows would go like this: There's this thing called a string, and it's super complicated. And here is a video of one of the physicists, theoretical physicists who's working on it. And they'd show the video of the guy and the guy would say, there's this thing called a string and it's super complicated. <laughs> but what it does is everything in the world and you can't understand why. And I, I'd see those and I'd be like, this is unsatisfactory because, because it makes all physics seem like it's incomprehensible. And that's not the case. Anybody could understand physics or any specific physics topic if you sat them down in a bar and just had a normal conversation with them for an hour. And so I was like, here's a list of topics, maybe, you know, 80, 100 topics that I think it was probably about 30, but whatever. The topics <laughs> list has grown since then um, where I feel like people could understand and also get kind of enthusiastic about plain Jane settled science. We know it's true. It's not on the forefront of knowledge, um, but it's interesting. Right. Uh, and you can understand how this works. We can, if we have a slow enough conversation, anybody can understand how it works. And that's kind of the premise of the show is that we can go through these ideas and explain them. But I'm running out of ideas. <laughs> I'm running out of topics. Um, so I was thinking internally that will probably last – the show will probably last in its current form until about episode 100. Okay. And about episode 100, that's a huge number. We'll have been going at that point in time for about eight years. And I'll say, okay, eight years is long enough. This is a this is a whole set thing. I've been transcribing the episodes so that you can uh, they exist online as documents that you can read. Cool. Um, and you know um, the uh, the people that host our shows, as long as they exist, if we stop paying them money, they will continue to host our shows. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think I, I I think that as a project. In its current form, it might end at, at about episode 100. And then after that, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm thinking that there might be something – like I think that in the way we're doing our show specifically, it's pretty good. Yeah. But you see other people 
taking advantage of more popular mediums like YouTube. Mm-hmm. YouTube is a fantastic uh, medium for explaining science to people because you have a video. Yes, yes. The video so right now, yeah. In in when in, in our podcast, if we if we say, hey, imagine that there's a galaxy. You know what a galaxy looks like, right? And they go. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. But if you don't know what a galaxy looks like, well, what are we talking about? You yeah, have to yeah. stop the show and look it up, right? <laughs> um, so we're we are super limited on the types of explanations we can do and the types of things we can talk about because it's a purely audio medium. Um, so and also, you know, as much as I love podcasting, and as much as podcasting is on the wax in terms of its popularity. I think that these video, these these you know online videos have a lot more popularity going for them. So after episode 100, once I feel like I've done everything on the titanium physicist that I can, I might switch up the uh, the format a little bit, or maybe try something new. So that's that's the moral of the story. Is I, I don't know. We'll we'll talk until we're done saying our, everything we have to say, and then after that, we'll try something else. Rehash it all in video. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure. Who knows? And, something fun and where did why titanium physicists okay <laughs> i'll let you guys i'll let your audience you and your audience in on a secret it's all about iron chef <laughs> the whole thing is about iron chef it all just snapped so, into focus for me as soon as you said that now I there's <laughs> yeah the 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 format of each episode has me coming out. First, there's a disclaimer about the point and the grandiose nature of, of study, generally. <laughs> and then we play this brave-sounding music. And then after that, I come on and read an introduction of how I discovered this particular topic. And then I introduce my physicists, and they rise up from the mist. <laughs> and, then, and, then I, and then we just have it in on a, on a regular conversation. Um, I got but, you. This framing device is all Iron Chef, yeah. Perfect, perfect. Makes, <laughs> makes perfect sense. And again, if you if you'd had it in video, I would have gotten it right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the clever bit. But don't don't tell anybody. I won't let everybody in your audience. Keep this is a secret. Yeah. This is a, this is a, an Easter egg for people <laughs> who listen to our show. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. Well, Ben, thanks so much for spending part of your Sunday talking to us. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. I've enjoyed myself. As have I, and uh, we will look forward to uh, wh- where can people find titanium physicists first of all. Uh, you can find us by well Google. I mean, yes, who types things in web browsers anymore. That's true. Uh, just Google titanium physicists. Uh, it's at www.titaniumphysics.com. Okay. If you feel like typing in things, should I should I write http no colon backslash backslash? No, I'll put that in in post. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> And then, of course, you're on iTunes. I assume. Yes, that's right. We we are on iTunes. Everything, everything good except for um, we're not on Google Play yet. We'll direct everybody to the Titanium Physicist podcast. And uh, if I ever uh, am in need of a scientific explanation, I know who to come to. Well, as long as it's physics. <laughs> if it's not physics, I could probably point to you to point you to somebody who knows anything. <laughs> I know nothing about biology. That'll do just fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben, thanks so much. See you, everybody. All right, talk to you again. Bye. Bye-bye. What a delightful conversation. I have never spoken to a theoretical physicist before. 
And I don't know that I will again, but I, and I certainly would let my sister marry one, but he seemed okay. He told you where to find the show. And if you somehow miss the details, you can always jump on over to our home site, succotashshow.com and click on the link in the blog piece for this very show. And now it's time to check the mighty tweet sack. Hello Tweety for tweets, emails, and the like. Lots of emails flying back and forth between Meg Wright, the Splitsider.com editor of This Week in Comedy podcast review column, and the columnists as we all gear up for the big year-end wrap-up. All of us will be doing our nominated best episode for the year. In addition, I will be covering off on best new podcast from a magazine and a musical, best limited series, best sophomore season, and first big podcast network to close up shop. A little bit more of that a little later on the tweet sack. I got a tweet today from Kirsten Chambers, a very close friend of Abner Surd. Now, I mentioned I'd be telling you about what's going on with him. He has his Shaggy Dogs and Tall Tales soundcast, but has also been supplying this show with his unique brand of mostly a cappella songs for a while now. Well, Abner is going on a long and well-deserved hiatus from recording his soundcast magic, I'm told, but not before gracing us with one last song. Here's Picking Daisies on the Moon. Well, it was nine o'clock at midnight in the early afternoon, and I was picking all the daisies in the meadow on the moon. When all the stars came out to play, the daisies up and flew away. They flew up to the sun and stopped, where when they tried to land, it popped. And in the brightness of the shadows, all the pieces of the sun turned off the lights and went to bed before the morning chores were done. I climbed a ladder up the stairway to the basement of the moon, and there I met a man who had no hands, who held a square balloon. The square balloon was full of bees, and they were busy making cheese, and when the cheese became a queen, she gave the man a tangerine. I wrote a note to say hello, he couldn't hear me, I suppose, but then he turned his back to face me, and he bit me with his nose. I put a saddle on a porcupine and rode across the sea to overtake the undertaker just before he buried me. The undertaker undertook to call the porcupine a crook. In spite of all his needling, he couldn't prove a single thing. And in the middle of the end of the beginning of late June, the porcupine and I went back to picking daisies on the moon. Thanks, Abner. Enjoy your time away, and we will be here when you return, probably. Got a lot of thanks and love from the people behind the new Terms soundcast over on Wondery. Only reason I mention it here is because it's not a comedy soundcast, but I did give it a pretty ravey review last week on Huffington Post. It's all about an unlikely candidate who wins the presidential election, what? And how the outgoing POTUS decides to try to do something about it. So check it out if you get a chance. It's called Terms, and you can find it in all of the usual podcast places. I just sent off my reading of the narrator part of the Casa Mirth Christmas special. Not sure when that audio extravaganza is set to drop, but it will include the voice, uh, the voices of a number of our soundcasting friends on both sides of the pond. So I'll be sure to put the word out when I know more likely on the Twitch stream when that is going to hit. Friend of Succotash Sean Merrick emailed me to let me know that the Sideshow Network, where he's been the senior producer for the past couple of years, is going away. 
As of the end of the year, their parent company, Levity, no longer gets the joke, it seems, and they'll be cutting loose all of their shows and their studio facilities as well. So that's a bummer, man. Sean's a great guy. Uh, I'm sure he'll land on his feet and find something in production, whether it's podcasting or television or something else. Lives down there in L.A. where it's all happening. So wishing him the best of luck for 2017. Phil Vecchio, host of the Family Ties podcast, who I know from hanging out in the podcast lab the past few L.A. podfests, emailed me to see if I could put him in touch with Mark Price, who played Skippy on that show. Mark was our special guest back in Epi 60 of Succotash, and I've known him for a few years, so I was able to hook those two up. So be listening for him on an upcoming installment of Phil's Soundcast. And from Eleanor Blacklock at AOL.com comes this note left on the SuccotashShow.com website comment section. Quote, hey there, I discovered your weblog, The Usage of MSN. That is a very smartly written article. I'll make sure to bookmark it and come back to learn extra of your useful info. Thank you for the post. I'll certainly come back. Unquote. Needless to say, I did not approve that to be posted, so you will not see it there. But maybe I should have. All right, that brings us to our whirlwind of wonderfulness, where I thank a bunch of you for your tweets, retweets, follows, likes, hearts, thumbs ups, and other various mentions in the social mediums. Here we go. Monster Party HQ, The All-Seeing Guys, Dave in the Cave, Kirsten Chambers, Podcast Booster Bot, Patrick Hanlon, Emily Miller, Zane Lamprey, Vin Forte, 288 Podcast, Matt Slayer, Illusionoid, Podcast Network, Happy Birthday to Hob the Troll, by the way, Aristotle Daner, Phoebe Robinson, Terry McGovern, Leandra Ryan, Haseeb Awan, The Slant, Broken Filter Live Podcast, Wisdom Pills, Movies Made Me Podcast, Cruel Hamster, Changes in Latitudes, Jeffrey Welchman, Courtney Joy, Ed Wallach, Jill Moragos, Kent Heckel, Billy Presida, Salty Language Podcast, Charles Wyand, Reggie Britton, Comedy Film Nerds, The Harrington Catalog. I don't know why they're on our Twitch stream, but I love their stuff. Twilight Zone Podcast, Jabs of the D-Head Factor, John and Terry Klimshin. I was just on, or I just recorded an interview with John Klimshin. Uh, he has a startup podcast all about startup businesses. I'll tell you more about that when I know it's going to drop. The TDI podcast page, Ice in the Face, Helen Taylor, Cocktails and Kimonos, John Dredge, Will Wilkins, Another Golgolfin, Jake and Tom Conquer the World, and DAPF Pod Neil. That's it for this week's Whirlwind of Wonderfulness. Include Succotash in your social media hijinks, and I will try to mention you in an upcoming version of this very same nonsense. All right, let's close out this episode of Succotash Chats with the top 10 news stories of 2016 as seen through the mouth of Will Durst. Hey, guys. Will Durst here with the top 10 comedic news stories of 2016, which are not to be confused with the top 10 legitimate news stories of 2016. No, no, no. They are as different as cute kitten videos are from stainless steel collar stays, petroleum jelly in the cobblestones outside of 10 Downing Street, corn chowder in Michelangelo's David, trope and tripe. So these are they, the stories from the first 11 twelfths of 2016 that most lent themselves to the humorous, amusing, and comedic. 
Number 10. Fidel Castro dies, but at least hung on long enough to see the beginning of the end of American democracy. Number 9. The GOP primaries. A year-long circus featuring a lion tamer who used whips and chains and insults, questioning his opponent's energy, heritage, wives' attractiveness, and the size of their genitals. Number 8. Brexit. Turns out most Brits consider xenophobe to be a musical instrument. Number seven, the Chicago Cubs win the World Series, which Nostradamus cited as one of the signs of the apocalypse. Number six, Bob Dylan wins the Nobel Prize for Literature, and next year, Stockholm is going to give the Peace Prize to Paris Hilton for her delightful tweets. Number five, Malaria, Melania Trump's GOP convention speech. Now, every time Michelle Obama talks, the world waits for Melania's spin on it. Number four, Hillary Clinton's email problems. She says she was only following precedents set by other secretaries of state. And she's right. In 1790, Thomas Jefferson had server problems as well. The difference? His server was pregnant. Number three, Bernie Sanders, who almost debated Donald Trump. Would have been fun to see the Vermont senator chew up the New York City real estate developer, but then be forced to spit him out due to religious dietary laws. Number two, the Galaxy Note 7, promoted as water-resistant. What they didn't mention was underwater was the safest place to use the thing. And finally, number one, Donald J. Trump, who won the U.S. presidential election with a little help from his friends. The FBI, Vladimir Putin, the mob, WikiLeaks, fake news stories, Anthony Weiner, Bill Clinton, Rosie O'Donnell, white supremacists, and Alec Baldwin. For Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast, I'm Will Durst. Remember to look for Will at his home site, willdurst.com, and tweeting at Will Durst. He's got his big, fat, year-end kiss-off comedy show coming up here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It starts right after Christmas, I think on the 26th, and goes through like January 2nd or 3rd all over the Bay. So go to willdurst.com to get more details on that fab show. Also, don't forget to get your tickets to the SF Sketch Fest that takes place here in January in the uh, San Francisco area. I think they have over 400 shows. Unbelievable in just three weeks. Jump over to sfsketchfest.com. Reminder that I will be on Sunday the 15th moderating the 40th anniversary screening of Kentucky Fried Movie at the Castro. Then back with a 90-minute live special edition of Succotash on Sunday, June 22nd at Piano Fight in downtown San Francisco. And if you're going to be doing any shopping for the holidays by way of Amazon, please do use the Amazon banner at the top of our SuckatashShow.com home site. Because when you access their site through our site, we get a tasty little morsel of a kickback, and that money helps to cover the production costs of this show. If you're not in a buying mood, visit our home site anyway, and just click on the Donate button. You won't end up buying anything, but you'll give us some money, and we love that. And that, my friend, is that. Succotash Chats Epi 144 is just another piece of Soundcast history right now. Hopefully we'll have another installment dropping before Christmas, but just in case we don't do that, because I sometimes get very behind, please have a very merry one or a happy Hanukkah or a kick-ass Kwanzaa, and don't forget to pass the Succotash. Good bye. Goodbye. 
been listening to Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast, with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, on SoundCloud, and on Ha Ha Ha, the laughable app. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at marc at SuckatashShow.com. Or call into the Suckatash hotline at our non- Untold free call number 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcasts directly to us using our direct upload link at hightail.com slash you slash succotash. Succotash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer Producer is Tyson Sainer. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durgins. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotash. Goodbye.